Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Once upon a time, there was a little Moppet whose grit and optimism on screen gave the world courage to make it through the Great Depression. But time is a fickle mistress, and fashion is too, and Shirley Temple reinvented herself, this time to star on the political stage. The end. Let's talk about Shirley Temple Black. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1931, Thomas Edison submitted his last of over 1,000 patents. This one was for an electroplating component. Jane Addams was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. The 98-foot-tall Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro was completed. Alka-Seltzer and electric shavers were first sold. Alvin Ailey, James Earl Jones, James Dean, Tony Morrison, Rita Moreno, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, Desmond Tutu, and Dan Rather were all born. Anna Pavlova, Ida B. Wells Barnett, and Thomas Edison all died. And in 1931, little Shirley Temple stood in front of a film camera for her very first movie. Shirley Jane Temple was born April 23, 1928, the third and last child of George Temple and Gertrude Krieger Temple. Papa George was originally from Pennsylvania. He was a California transplant, but his family had been in the United States since before the Revolutionary War. His father had been a very eccentric doctor. However, he died when George was just eight, leaving the widow Temple with four children living in Erie, Pennsylvania. When George's older sister contracted tuberculosis, the family needed to look for someplace warmer that was better for her health, so they moved to California. And it was there that George went to school for only about a year because he had to drop out of school at 14 to get a job to help support this family. Eventually, everybody in the family is working just to put a roof over their heads and food on all their plates. He started his job as a clerk and then slowly started to work his way up. Mama's family moved to L.A. the same year that Papa's did, although she was significantly younger. So at the age of 10, she moved from Chicago to L.A. for job opportunities for her German immigrant father. In Chicago, where they lived, he had owned a jewelry store and a watch repair shop. So the shop moved to California. The family lived above it. The shop was open below. Mama and Papa worked in the shop. And little Gertrude... She was responsible for her younger brother, Ralph. So she did a lot of babysitting. So here, Mama and Papa are in these very working class families. Um, Mama, as she got older, got a job outside of the house as a stenographer. Not too many opportunities for young women in 1910. So all the adults are having to work to provide for their respective families. But in their spare time, they're young people. They want to have a little fun. They liked to go dancing. They liked to go to the Henry K. Kramer Dancing Cotillion for Adults. <laughs> it sounds really fancy, you know. It sounds so fancy. You went to be seen. You went to hang out with your friends. You went to dance. You went to meet opposite sex. So what we're saying is they met at the club. <laughs> um, and Papa was a notoriously dorky dancer. Now that is so sad that we know that, but that is what has come down to us. <laughs> but nevertheless, the two met and fell in love. 
I have to wonder how their first conversation went. Did they just rely on the things that they had in common, you know, that they had both moved there from a cold climate. They had both dropped out of high school. Both of their fathers had passed away. I mean, that was that the basis of their relationship? It certainly wasn't the dancing. I know what the first conversation probably was. Stay with me, everyone that's been out. You know, here's how the conversation went. What? Gertrude! <laughs> what? Yeah, that's how it really went. That was their first conversation, if we're being truly honest. <laughs> then the band stops and they're screaming. Yes. Yeah. They got married in 1913 and set up house. These were not wealthy people, but the city was growing by leaps and bounds exponentially. And opportunity was everywhere, especially for someone at the beginning of their life with <laughs> low standards with regard to their living situation, you know? <laughs> We talk about all the time that you and I wouldn't stay in a youth hostel now, probably. No, no. Um, or any of the apartments we lived in in college. But for a young couple with all their lives ahead of them and their health, and and um, it was just like such an exciting place to be and such an exciting time to live there. There were economic challenges, like Mama's income taken away from her mother um, was kind of devastating for that household. And then, of course, Papa had been supporting his mother and helping to support that family, you know, so that was a little stressful. Also, once women got married, they were sort of expected to stop working. So here's Papa's income, now the only income in the house. So, you know, it was a little bit rocky there at the beginning, especially when their two sons were born, Jack in 1915 and Sonny in 1919. George was working at the time for Southern California Edison. At night, he took correspondence courses or night classes so that he could increase his skill set and work himself up, make a better resume. Meanwhile, there's Gertrude at home with two little kids, you know, essentially doing what she had been doing for her whole life when she was taking care of her younger brother. As part of that childcare, she loved to read stories to her boys. And each time she read a story, she would embellish it and she would do the voices. She was one of those moms that did the voices and kind of dramatically acted out the parts as she was reading them. In the back of her mind, she had always harbored a dream that her future was on the stage. And this was the closest she could get. So Mr. Temple is bettering himself, bettering their situation. The Temples moved from house to house, neighborhood to slightly better neighborhood. He's climbing the corporate ladder. They're climbing the respectability ladder. He ended up as an assistant branch manager at a bank. They had a radio. They had a car. They lived in the, hey, looks like we made it section of Santa Monica. It's like their suburban dream house, you know, two-car garage, only one car in it, little kids on the lawn. How many people with a two-car garage have two cars in them? I do. What? Well, I guess nowadays you should say how many people with garages have cars in them. <laughs> but we're neurotic. We like to keep our garage clean and have room for two cars. I know. Yeah, my garage is technically under the house because it was the olden days when you would run your little... Model T under the house and <laughs> stick it next to the coal bin hole. This is so not important. <laughs> Their lives seem headed in an upward trajectory. The country seemed headed in an upward trajectory. Everybody just had to sit back and ride the express train to prosperity. America was going to want for nothing. I envy them that optimism. However, you know, spoiler alert, what's coming. But for right then, everybody was just convinced that life was just going to get better and better. 
Well, Gertrude, she wanted for nothing, but she wanted something. She thought, well, you know what? There is no reason not to try for a third child. Ideally, rubs hands, crosses fingers, a daughter. Her sons were getting to that. My friends are more important than you age. And I tell you what, as a mother of a only boy, that's a heartbreaking situation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Even when you have two boys. (laughs) Well, Susan has, shall we say, similarly spaced children. I do. My youngest is six years younger than the next kid. Well, as Gertrude told it later, she manifested the phenomenon that would become Shirley Temple, TM, um, (laughs) by lots of prenatal exposure to music and art and the finer things in life. And you know what, though? We scoff, don't we? We do scoff. But my own son, I played because I subscribed to the same I don't know. Woo woo. No, no, no. I subscribe to it as well. When my first baby kicked at a Tom Petty song, I was so excited. (laughs) Okay. Well, now this is going to sound, I don't even know what the word is, pretentious or something. My parents are symphony musicians. So let me just start with that. But I used to, with headphones, play my son this classical music CD Mm -hmm. over and over while he was in my tummy. And I will tell you that for about three years after he was born, he would calm down when I would play that CD. So I believe it. So we can poo-poo or not Gertrude's claims of in utero control. But what she wanted was a daughter. And that is exactly what she got on April 23rd, 1928. Little six-pound, eight-ounce Shirley Temple was born at Santa Monica Hospital. Now, there is not a middle name on her birth certificate, although many sources cite it as Jane. Do what you will with that, knowing, of course, that in her future, she has a publicity department behind her. (laughs) Well, Shirley Jane was beautiful. The apple of Mama's eye, the fulfillment of all of Mama's desires. And every night, as soon as her hair was long enough, Shirley got her hair put into rag curls, and once a week, her hair was rinsed, quote, with peroxide (laughs) to keep it blonde. The same for my mother and aunt, people. Really? Only in their case, it was henna, quote, cream rinse. My maternal grandpa was a dark redhead, and I think my grandma was interested in perpetuating that hair color. My mother said she did not know she actually wasn't a redhead until third grade. Oh my gosh. And I have a picture of them to put in the show notes um, and you can see the curls, but you can't see the red because it's in black and white. Wow. I had two kids with that hair, the curls and the light color. And one of them now has, I would call it light brown hair. And the other one is a strawberry blonde. I still think of the one that has brown hair as a blonde. Like in my head, he's got blonde hair. <laughs> well, um, just a brief note here on the outside world before we head back in to Shirley's small world. The year 1929 is famous as the beginning of the Great Depression. The famous stock market crash happened when Shirley was about one and a half years old, but it wasn't really like we imagined it. You know, one day fountains of champagne and the next day the bread line. Exactly. It was a few years of, um, how do I describe this? Like hope, rebound, and then another punch in the face. (laughs) Yeah, I know that's a good way to describe it. That's technical economic terms there. Um, Just over and over with every economic indicator just going down and down, and banks began to fail all over the country over the next few years during all of Shirley's preschool years. 
and early professional years, the unemployment percentage rose from three, the year she was born, to 24% by the time Shirley was four. One in four workers were out of a job. A big percentage of the rest of Americans were getting by on odd jobs or reduced hours, i.e. reduced wages. And I imagine that Papa in the banking business himself had to be at some level every minute of his waking life constantly afraid that he would join their ranks. Oh, absolutely. He had to take a cut in pay as soon as all the other banks were starting to fall. But I also think he's probably grateful that his didn't, and it never did, Yeah, which is saying something nice. But the Temple family, you know, they had a mortgage, they had that car to pay for, they had five mouths to feed, and he had a reduced income, so everybody had to tighten their belts. However, Mama followed the path of ambitious mothers all over the country. Luckily, she was on site and didn't have train tickets or hotels to pay for, but she enrolled Shirley in the, and that's a capital T-H-E, premier dance studio and booking agency run by former Ziegfeld Follies dancer Ethel Meglin. Being accepted here was considered a giant coup. This was like a feeder to the movie business, as this establishment was often visited by talent scouts from nearby movie studios. In fact, only three years before, Frances Gum and her sisters were discovered here. We, of course, know her as Judy Garland. Who we did cover in the Women of Oz podcast. So tap, 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 big smiles, children. Shirley and her fellow three-year-old classmates were in the middle of class when two strange men came into the room and everyone else was on their best behavior. But Shirley noped herself on out of sight. She and another little girl hid from the talent scout behind a piano, but he was looking for some specific age children, under fives, and Mrs. Meglin didn't accept a lot of under five children. So when he saw these two little pairs of feet, he had the girls come out and audition for him. I picture him going, I'll take the one behind the piano. (laughs) You know, but so he was a movie producer for a company called Educational Films Corporation. So the whole stardom like track is just whims and luck, isn't it? Just. Oh, absolutely. It is for anybody, I think. Yeah. I love the name of that film company, Educational Films. It wasn't done ironically, but the movies that they were going to be producing, that they were casting, were far from educational. They were called Baby Burlesques, and that's spelled B-E-R-L-E-S-K-S. It's kind of a twist on burlesque, and the movies themselves were kind of in a twist on popular movies of the time, except acted by children wearing large diapers with huge safety pins in them. The comedy was, comedy is in quotes, that these little kids would be placed into adult situations, sometimes even with grown-up voices doing the lines, like kind of a proto-drunk history. Mm -hmm. That's how it started. Yeah, that's what they imagined, but that's not how it ended up. The kids were taught to kind of mug for the camera, to pout and gesture like silent movie actors. They were taught their lines by parroting back what the director told them to say. So for an example, a modern example of that, it actually is kind of funny, although has similar exploitative properties. Have you ever seen a short by Will Ferrell called Pearl the Landlord? I have not. 
there is an age where little kids will say back to you in any tone of voice, whatever you say to them. And so Will Ferrell opens the door and there's a little tiny kid there that's like, I need my rent. I need a beer. You got to move out or whatever. And and it's kind of funny. But anyway, so Google Pearl the landlord if you want to see how that, that worked. Here's the worst thing ever to me. They kept a black painted like a six foot by six foot box with a block of ice in it. How specific. And somebody has to order the ice. Just kills me. And the kids, all under four, if they annoyed him, he would have them put in the box to go sit on the block of ice in their little diaper pants and think about what they had done. You know what? I know. They told them if you tell your parents, parents were not allowed on the set, there will be consequences. Surely, of course, was a normal kid. She had to sit in the box. She did try to tell her mother, but her mother either thought she was exaggerating or just had put blinders on and refused to listen to it because the family needed the money. Not only was Shirley working, but Gertrude herself landed a gig with Shirley as Shirley's seamstress. That's right. She made her costumes or her half costumes. The diaper was the other half. Her hairdresser, those 56 pin curls every day. And her chauffeur, she made $5 a week, which is about $85, $86 in 2020 money. So all of this punishment and stress and 12-hour workdays, though, were unpaid because the studio would only pay for filming days. Man, talk about exploitative. Uh So, so bad. At the end of all of these unpaid rehearsals, having sat on the box, Shirley had gotten a cold that had turned into a middle ear infection. And... She was very, very sick the day before filming, and her mother had to rush her to the emergency room to get her eardrum pierced. That's what they did to let the infection run out. Now, I think they do that now to put tubes in your ears. There were no tubes. It was just a piercing, and then you would lay on one side and and let the infection come out. It's painful. It's scary. I can't imagine Shirley got very much sleep, and her mother asked, can we delay a day because Shirley's really very, very sick. And the producer's like, she doesn't show, she gets replaced. And you know, that is the theater business. There's a hundred kids in line behind you, lady. Mm -hmm. But doesn't it seem brutal to take a sick three-year-old to work, to get yelled at and put in a box? Mm -hmm. And that first day of work, she did show up and she worked a 12-hour day. To pay for production, they had their little actors and models go pose for advertisements for free. The kids would pose for free because that was in their contract, but educational films got the money and that's how they paid for production. So all in all, the business model was super suspect and you really, really had to look at these parents and go, do you need this stardom that badly that you're ignoring all these red flags? No kidding. And then just the filming was not only physically demanding on these kids, But it was dangerous. I mean, there was no codes in place for safety. There was one scene where Shirley and another kid were on a cart rolling down a hill. So they were really on a cart rolling down a hill and it hit a wall. And the director looked at him and said, this isn't playtime, kids. It's work. Okay, I get hurt when I work. Contrary to what Gertrude was saying, which was, oh, no, Shirley does this for play. That's her playtime. In addition, the studio had a deal where they would take a percentage 
of her earnings if she was loaned out. Now, that actually seems the only reasonable scenario. That's like an agency fee. Ultimately, Shirley was in eight official baby burlesques, um, one of which she played a dancing showgirl. She said she was very expensive. I'm like, oh, Lord, R-rated, G-R, waving <laughs> myself. You know what? Shirley Temple herself in an interview as a grown-up person called these baby burlesques, and I quote, a cynical exploitation of our childish innocence that were often racist or sexist. So that's how Shirley thought of them. Um, not playtime. Also four other short features for this company. But when Shirley was only five years old, suddenly educational films filed for bankruptcy. Uh-oh. And so Papa went in and bought up the rest of Shirley's contract to keep her out of all the mess. And then Mama was anxiously looking around for another opportunity. She kept up appearances, but the family finances were sliding into genteel poverty territory. And more than she'd like to admit, the Temples had actually come to rely quite a bit on Shirley's income from these films. And Mama heard through the grapevine that the powers that be at Fox were displeased with the performance of the little girl that they had cast in this upcoming movie called Stand Up and Cheer. It was already in production, but there was chitter chat around the set like, oh, no, I don't think we got the right person. And the story goes that the songwriter and I quote, saw Shirley dancing in a movie theater lobby and asked her mother to bring her in for a screen test. So that is the probably close to the truth story. It was later put about that she won over 250 other little children. Was oh. there some stalking of this guy? That's what I think to put Shirley in his way. Yeah, I think he was just going where kids were, kid actors, to look at them. And that's where the kids were that had experience because it was one of the baby burlesque openings. So I can totally imagine, though, seeing this guy and like, dance, Shirley, dance, you know, they're all standing yeah. <laughs> there. Pull his attention to you. Um, so it smells of fish. I'm just going to say this whole like coincidental meeting. So he brought her in for a screen test and hey, presto, Shirley replaced the original cast member. How horrible does she feel? Did you know that Harry Potter was recast too? I did not know that. This other kid literally had the part. Of Harry? Yes. And then they found out he wasn't British and recast him. Oh. Yikes, but yay. That has got to be, I hope that guy's okay. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I'm sure he is. So this movie, Stand Up and Cheer, is kind of meta, kind of self-referential. Can this showrunner's little daughter work on his show in defiance of child labor laws? <laughs> and coincidentally, can society pull itself out of the depression with a dose of the old razzle-dazzle? Well, the movie answers yes, and it literally is like a direct result of their variety show. It's like a series, this movie of vaudeville acts, I think. Mm -hmm. Father and the mother were a vaudeville act, but then the mother dies. Shirley Temple loses a parent or two parents in most of her movies. This was just the first one. And they want to replace her with Shirley. And the big reveal is a dance. Even if you've never seen a Shirley Temple movie, you've seen Shirley Temple in this dance on something or the picture. Imagine those 56 ringlets that she had. And Shirley's wearing a white dress with red polka dots. The skirt is very short. And there's enough crinolines underneath it that it's almost horizontal. And Shirley comes out. She does a curtsy and puts her finger on her chin. Everybody knows that picture, right? It's the dress she wears in all the dolls. It's very famous. 
Well, and even the lyrics to the song, it's there's like a half circle of actors and she kind of emerges out of the middle. And some of the lines from this song are, who's that bunch of personality? Hasn't she got everything? You're a standout. Listen to the compliments they hand out. Baby, take a bow. You know, it's like introducing Shirley Temple. Like it's literally Mm -hmm. too on the nose to have written. And then her and her father, who's played by James Dunn, do the same dance that Shirley had auditioned with, a routine she had learned at Miss Meglin's. But they do this tap dance and it's utterly charming. So that was money well spent. If you can take the dance you learned in dance class and just transfer it to the big screen, there's a lot of time steps I did notice. I'm like, Phil, 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 you know? (laughs) Yeah. But it was so cute and I am super cynical and I even had a big smile on my face. And there's clips of this on YouTube that you can watch. So she wasn't even the star of the show, by the way. And the praise came rolling down the mountain like an avalanche in the newspaper. You just want to reach into the screen and grab her and hug her. Or she was the most adorable smile ever seen in pictures. More practically, from some equally hard-boiled journalist this kid has the power to become a big star. I mean, y'all, she is so freaking cute in this. Dang, you can see it. She has, you know, it, like Clara Bow's it. Star power, magnetismo. But Fox knew it too, and they scrambled to lock her down into a contract. And the first contract, Shirley was supposed to get 150 a week. Now that's like almost 3K modern a week for someone who has not yet been to kindergarten. <laughs> and mama, able assistant, and child wrangler got a giant raise too. In fact, mama got paid the average yearly income in 1934. So she just jumped right on up there into the absolute middle of the middle class. But Shirley was making four or five times more than she was per week. <laughs> but wait, there's more. While Shirley was out on loan, to another studio, the old black box ice chest production company decided to sue for, quote, their percentage. And oh, did they not know what hit them. The resultant <laughs> lawsuit and publicity ended up with, number one, a slap down for the educational picture company. Of course, they slunk back into their hole. And number two, a seven-year contract with Fox, where Shirley was now making $1,000 a week, like a million dollars a year, today's money, plus bonuses for completed films, plus more importantly, as far as Shirley was concerned, a scooter, unlimited <laughs> jump ropes, dolls, and lots of other toys. While all this financial scrambling was going on, the publicity department was building up Shirley's image. You know, where did this child come from? She came from nowhere. Really? She had made like 20 films at this point. Did she have any training? No, she's just a natural. How old is she? Four and a half. Because she wasn't four and a half. She was five and a half. She was six when that movie premiered. Yes, that was a little bit of an odometer rollback that Shirley Temple herself was not aware of until she turned 12 and discovered, oh, actually, you're 13. <laughs> she laughs about it. I guess, you know, my parents have been lying to me my, for my whole life. But I'm a teenager. Yay! They even produced a new birth certificate with this birth date on it. You know, April 23rd, 1929. 
Hmm. Well, Shirley Temple, whatever age she thought she was, appeared in no less than 10 movies in 1934. Some big, some little, some of her parts left on the cutting room floor. But right after the success of Stand Up and Cheer, the studio, No Fools, rolled out another picture called Baby Take a Bow, not a sequel. In fact, this one features jewel thievery and gun violence. I know. but I was so confused about that. Well, but w- the same actor was playing her dad in both pictures. Why mess with a winning combo? The chemistry test worked great. So then they wrote a movie just to showcase her called Bright Eyes with the same dad playing her father. Uh, her name is Shirley in all three of these movies, which seems kind of lazy, but you, know, you do what you do. They did the same thing with Phyllis in the office. I'm, I'm sure it was just convenient. But um, dang, though, this third movie, Bright Eyes, is also full of tragedy. Her mother is hit by a car while delivering a birthday cake. I mean, it seems like needless trauma. And then there's a custody battle and, a, and an aircraft accident. And you think you don't know this movie. You think you don't. But you do. I do? Yes, you do. At least part of it. Do you know a song that goes a little like this, Susan? Why me? Because <laughs> I sang before. Oh, okay. On the good ship, lollipop. You know that one, right? <laughs> and um, hey, here's a little information. It's not a boat. It's a plane. We've officially learned things. The good ship, That's- lollipop is an airplane. Hooray. It was an actual airplane that was driving back and forth on the runway while they were filming it. (laughs) So Shirley uh, was loaned out to Paramount for a movie called Little Miss Marker, which is actually my first exposure to Shirley Temple was this movie. And that's kind of strange. Little Miss Marker is not very sunny. She's literally abandoned at like a bookie's office as collateral for a debt by her yes, father. Her, her father puts her up as as a collateral for a debt and then his horse loses. So he kills himself. I mean, that's horrible. Yeah. She's cast as the little innocent in, in dire situations. And then her charm like melts the frozen hearts. It's a theme. The media frenzy about her was almost unbelievable. And movies were a relatively cheap escape from the grim realities of the Depression. You know, Shirley's optimism in the face of just grim realities in these movies was a great relief. And she just became a cultural phenomenon. There were Shirley Temple lookalike contests all over the country within the same year that she debuted on the big screen. I mean, 56 ringlets. Everybody knew you had to have 56 and the judge was going to count them. You had to have full costumes. There is a scene, if you've read the books, The Divine Secret of the Yaya Sisterhood, there's actually a whole chapter about the four main characters and how they entered a Shirley Temple lookalike contest and all about their costumes that they chose and what they looked like. And the title of that chapter in the journal is Girls Poot Get Disqualified. (laughs) Because they're up on stage and Teensy farted, one of them say in the microphone and the whole audience is like, oh, and then they show their booty to the audience and waggle around and it's just hilarious. And then they get kicked out of the contest and they shame the town. She was so popular that the Brown Derby restaurant in Hollywood created a drink in her honor. It's lemon lime soda, grenadine, and cherries, and we still know it as the Shirley Temple. 
Shirley didn't like it. It was too sweet for her. Her parents were crazy about the name being used because they weren't making any money on it. And the only time that they could bring a lawyer in on it is when a soda company wanted to mass produce it and call it Shirley Temple Soda. And that was when they crossed the line and it had to just be Shirley T. Soda. But in my in-depth research for this podcast, I found a cocktail called Dirty Shirley and I made it and it was quite delicious. <laughs> What's in a Dirty Shirley? Um, Vodka and grenadine and lime juice. It was good. And lots of cherries, which is fine because I, I mean, the recipe asked for some shishi cherries that I didn't have. I just had, you know, the little jar from the ice cream section, but I love maraschino cherries. So I threw them all in there. Actually, I put them on a twizzle or like olives. I took a picture. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> Well, so much was thought of Shirley's work during the year of 1934 that a special Academy Juvenile Award, which they kind of refer to just as the Juvenile Oscar, was given to Shirley for, quote, outstanding contributions to entertainment for her first year as a big star. This award, it was just a tiny little Oscar it was only given out 12 times in the history of it. And the last was Haley Mills in 1960. But the very first was our Shirley Temple. And she, at the age of six, is still the youngest Oscar winner ever. Is there something interfering with your happiness or maybe preventing you from achieving your goals or maybe you're like me and this past year has really done a number on you? BetterHelp is here to do just that. Help. I am a longtime proponent of talk therapy. BetterHelp connected me with a licensed professional therapist and she's experienced in the issues that I need to work out. All of BetterHelp's counselors meet with you online, either through video chat or a phone call, whichever you're more comfortable with. And what's important to all of us right now, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can log into your account anytime, send a message to your counselor, and get back timely responses. I've been journaling on the BetterHelp site, and I haven't journaled in years. Bottom line, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, slash History Chicks, and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their own mental health with the help of an experienced professional. As a listener of the History Chicks, you can get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P, slash History Chicks. Right after her triumph at the Oscars, Shirley was asked to put her hand and footprints in the cement outside of an L.A. institution, Grauman's Chinese Theater. The first star to do this, in fact, was another The History Chick subject, Mary Pickford. Mm -hmm. Some other names already there by the time Shirley Temple got there. Uh, Douglas Fairbanks, of course. Um, Joan Crawford, the Marx Brothers, Jean Harlow. So that's kind of amazing. Her yes. square says, love to you all, Shirley Temple. 
It's cute. So unlike other stars whose feet are there, although I do think R2-D2's track is there, but not till later, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> she put her little bare feet into the cement. Ooh, said everyone, bare feet. Ah, oh, that's so cute. Well, why did she do that? Because she is a consummate professional. And during the time when she was putting her handprints into the cement, she lost a tooth. And she was doing a little tap dance to distract people from looking at her face <laughs> until she took care of that. And in answer to the question that you're all asking, like, oh, wait, how did they deal with that? The answer is caps and bridge work for many years. Yeah, immediately. Like she would lose a tooth and the next day she'd be sitting in the dentist chair getting fit for a cap. Oh, yeah. That's not the last time a tooth has played a role in her story. I was going to insert these later, but let's like do the teeth stories now. At one point, John Steinbeck himself was on the set with his production um, of Grapes of Wrath. That's a very serious, dramatic retelling of a family's travels during the Dust Bowl. And he and the head of studio were sitting there and all of a sudden a messenger ran in. His hair was on end. They were panicking. Tears were coming out of the guy's eyes. Oh, no. What happened? Is it war? Is it war? And the guy whispered in his ear. And the president of the studio leaped up and ran out the door. Turns out Shirley Temple had lost a tooth. <laughs> yeah, that's alarming. President Franklin Roosevelt asked Shirley Temple upon meeting her, honey, why aren't you smiling? And she said, I lost a tooth. <laughs> I, can't, I can't have a smile in a picture. So it was a grin for her and not a smile. It's a big piece of her persona. Oh, yeah, because she smiles and that dimple comes out. <laughs> so 1935. Uh, she only made four movies in 1935, but they were big ones. And here we encounter another The History Chicks subject in the first one called The Little Colonel. Our old friend Hattie McDaniel plays the housekeeper. And just like all the other Shirley Temple movies, this one has some very dark elements, um, hostage crisis and estranged family, but also some from this time period, very disturbing content. It's very minstrelly, if you know what I mean. There is, however, the very famous staircase dance with African-American dancer turned actor Bill Bojangles Robinson. Their pairing was dynamic. If you've ever watched that scene, you can see the affection that they have for one another while they're dancing up the steps. And they truly had that. This was a wonderful friendship that Shirley and Bill had for the rest of Bill's life. Bill Robinson was kind of a trailblazer himself. He was the very first Black solo performer in a major vaudeville house. He was kind of a big deal. His appearances in her movies, through no fault of his own, were problematic in the Aunt Jemima School of Problematic. So one thing that is interesting to me, their dance on that stairway, which we will link you to because it is dynamic and spectacular. And he, in fact, taught her to dance by feeling the beat and not looking at her feet. So how about that? That was the first interracial dance in motion picture history. They hold hands while they're dancing. And that particular part of the scene was cut out of films that were shown in the United States South. This is 1935. And that would just be too much for theater goers to see. So there are a lot of minstrel elements in the 1935 movies, uh, including Shirley in literal blackface in The Littlest Rebel a little later in that year. But I do 
I do want to say on a higher note that Shirley pointed to her dance scenes in four separate movies with Bill Robinson as moments of actual, real joy. And she said, quote, I was ecstatic. So when you see her smiling in those scenes, that is that is surely just radiating the happiness of the moment. She would do anything to go dance with him and hang out with him. She called him Uncle Bill. I honestly wish that we could do a show on Bill Robinson. His life is so spectacular and he had to thread such a needle, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like Hattie McDaniel did. Like anything he did was scrutinized so heavily by every side and, and there was literally no no winning in his art and in his life. And I just really really admire him. And so did Shirley, of course. And she was too young to know how hard a row he had to hoe, you know? Yeah. All she knew is that he could come to dinner at her house, but she could never go to his house. He said that wouldn't be appropriate. Although he had pictures of her in his dressing room. He had pictures of Shirley Temple. I just loved this the dynamic between the two of them. It was just lovely. I loved it. So um, one more movie of 1935 before moving on. There's a movie called Curly Top, another box office hit. And I decided at some point during research to walk in and ask my son, who is 15, as are most of his friends in that area, I decided to ask him if he had ever heard of Shirley Temple. Mm-hmm. And he has this setup where he's playing a video game on Discord. Don't at me, people. I don't really understand it. So <laughs> he's playing a game with somebody or some buddies on that situation. And then he had people on a laptop, four people, Zoom, also playing, talking. And then he had somebody on his phone propped up. And so there's at least five and possibly seven kids of that age in the room when I walked in and I said, hi, Jet, sorry to interrupt. Have you ever heard of Shirley Temple? And all of a sudden, all of these deep male voices started singing. Animal crackers in my soup. Monkeys and rabbits loop the loop. Oh my God. I could not move from shock. I just stood there. My hands were in the air. My eyes were the only things moving back and forth. (laughs) What has just happened here? What a golden moment. That is. And I'm like, is it a remix? Has somebody sampled it or something? And they're like, no. There was a commercial that played like every 30 seconds on the Cartoon Network. So anytime they watched Adventure Time or World of Gumball or Ben 10 or Steven Universe, here comes that Time Life series, your favorite animal. (laughs) So that is amazing. Yeah, that that was a moment. Thanks for sharing it. So that is my connection to Curly Top, which honestly, I don't think I'd ever seen. I think I did. I had one of those childhoods where I watched a lot of movies and Shirley Temple movies were on, you know, the what one of the four channels we got. So I watched a lot of Shirley Temple movies when I was a kid. It did not make me want to be much of a tap dancer, <laughs> despite my mother's best intentions. Well, Shirley Temple was the top box office star in the entire world for the years 1935 36, 37, and 38. Her uh, fan clubs all over the world had almost 4 million members. And that is, remember, pre-social media, that is analog fan clubs. The name Shirley shot into the top five for baby girls during all of those years, even though it was pretty high to begin with. Uh The merchandising began in earnest, in particular, the ideal toy company's official Shirley Temple doll. 
The dolls came in a variety of sizes and a variety of price points, and everybody wanted one. As part of the agreement, Shirley would have to appear at some department stores sometimes, and there would be thousands upon thousands of people trying to get in just to get a glimpse of her at this publicity event is what it was. At one point, that series of Shirley Temple dolls accounted for one third of every doll sold in America. And then there was other merchandising, uh, Shirley Temple, paper dolls, coloring books, soap, scrapbooks, Quaker Oats, and Bisquick both used her as a spokesperson. Other than the dolls, the most lucrative merchandising was fashion. And in the Sears catalog, I hope we all remember how glorious it was to get that big fat Sears catalog. (laughs) Oh, I loved it. And flip to the page and mark them all, hopefully, and leave it casually on the coffee table. (laughs) The Sears catalogs during those years had whole sections of clothes inspired by Shirley's wardrobe. And I quote, Shirley and her cute clothes have stolen everyone's heart. No wonder every little girl wants to wear these same styles. Shirley Temple was aspirational. Girls wanted to be her. Mothers wanted their daughters to be sweet and charming and delightful like Shirley Temple, the ideal American girl. And this desire, this ache to be more like Shirley transcended both time and distance. Famous women as different from each other as Oprah Winfrey and Anne Frank both expressed their deep ache to be more like Shirley. Some papers credited this frenzy, it's just a frenzy, over uh, Shirley Temple merchandise for stimulating the economy. One newspaper wrote, one cure for the depression has made greater strides toward recovery, mental and financial, than all the other programs put together. That is the TRA, otherwise known as the Temple Recovery Act. That is a lot to put on the shoulders of one tiny, tiny little girl. And a percentage of all of this money was rolling into the Temple household where her father invested it for her. He'd been given a job at a bank as a uh, head of a bank, and he knew as well as everyone else that he got that job because he was Shirley Temple's father. In fact, there were publicity photos of her turning her paychecks into her father who was behind the counter, and he kind of described it as a little humiliating. His small daughter was the head of the household, really. I mean, monetarily. Right. But Shirley was given an allowance of $5 a week. And considered it a awesome thing. So much was made of Shirley being raised as a regular girl. <laughs> Although she had a whole, whole bungalow for her personal use at the studio with a picture painted on the wall as herself as a fairy princess slash angel. that's not very common at home she had sort of a life-sized playhouse and if you've never seen the posh tots catalog might i lead you to the posh tots catalog where they sell life-size replicas of your own house to use as a playhouse yes indeed they do much has been made of the regular life she was leading you know stars they're just like us she has an early bedtime she has strict behavioral standards at home we believe in spanking she eats plain food she has plenty of playtime i've tried hard said her mother not to let the trappings of fame spoil my daughter 
Shirley herself says she was a nightmare. So <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, it is what it is. She's a small child. She is also living in a mansion with over 5,000 square feet, but surrounded by fences and electric alarms and patrolling guards. She has her own carousel, her own swimming pool. She has a stable for her ponies. She's the most photographed person in the world. Much to her dismay, and I'm going to put this very carefully just in case there are ears of smallness, she met Santa Claus and he asked her for her autograph. Hmm. She was a special guest at President Roosevelt's 55th birthday party and FDR himself said, and I quote, the country would be all right as long as it still had Shirley. Shirley had met with President Roosevelt several times. It was almost as if Shirley was this little girl that was leading America out of the Depression, and she was tied to President Roosevelt, who was doing the same thing. So they were like these two smiling, optimistic figureheads of where America was going. She visited the White House several times. One time, Eleanor invited Shirley and her family out for a, quote, picnic at their house um, in upstate New York on the Hudson River in Hyde Park. Eleanor Roosevelt was grilling lamb chops, leaning over the grill, and apparently Shirley Temple liked to carry a slingshot with her. She couldn't resist the temptation. She picked up a pebble and shot it right at Eleanor Roosevelt's behind mm-hmm. and hit her. It's like she's a real kid, you know, she gets in trouble. Her mother was appalled, of course, and claimed that later Shirley was punished. She often talked about how uh, she punished Shirley and it would be a way that I didn't use. She was, you know, of the spanking method. I don't think she's a stranger to physical punishment because we've already witnessed her indifference to the terrors of the icebox. True. Shirley's own personal birthday was celebrated in movie theaters all over the country as a special event and marketing draw. She almost inevitably had a publicity photo shoot involving a birthday cake, although it always had the wrong number of candles on it, unbeknownst to her. And sometimes the studio would invite 100 or 200 children to celebrate with her, although they were given very strict instructions not to talk to her. And not to engage her in conversation. That was a a theme that went through some of the other child stars on her other movies said that Shirley had a stand in and was brought down just to exchange lines. And she was not to hang out with the other children on set. It's not interesting. It's kind of lonesome. It is. Well, she had a tutor or series of tutors that came to her cottage and it was just one on one instruction, even though there was a classroom for all of the other child actors. Shirley Temple was not allowed to go in with the gen pop of kids. And then she had a bodyguard, at least one wherever she went. People were very jumpy, uh, understandably so, like death threats, kidnapping threats had been coming in the mail. And 1932, I want to say, I don't know that the Charles Lindbergh's little mm-hmm. boy was kidnapped and ultimately killed. And so that was on the top of everyone's mind that no matter how nice 99% of the population is going to be, you're always going to end up with some threats. And, you know, she had to go to work in a bulletproof car, that kind of thing. So well, she also had state of the art security at her house of sensors on all the entrances and guards. And if anything happened, this police station was notified immediately. So it was always something that was at the forefront of at least her parents' mind. Stardom like this, and I think we talked about this during the Mary Pickford episode, was relatively new. 
no one had ever seen this kind of thing outside of of royalty if you think about it all of this adoration and love and and just fandom was a very alien concept and yeah, hadn't it, really been explored like the darker elements in it mm-hmm. it's something that we almost we see it a lot now i mean look at princess diana you know we've seen the level that it got to but back then brand spanking new one time shirley was doing a live radio show on christmas eve it was in front of an audience, and she was on stage singing when a woman in the audience stood up with a gun in her hand and pointed it towards Shirley. The guards in the area were able to tackle her and get her out of there. Shirley kept singing through the whole thing. That's how much she knew the show must go on. There were bullets in that gun. What had happened was this woman had given birth to a little girl on April 23rd, 1929. The child died shortly after she was born. And this woman was convinced that Shirley Temple had stolen the spirit of her child and that the only revenge would be to kill Shirley Temple. It's so sad. And it's worse when you think the only reason that she would have thought that she was born the same day as Shirley is that she was going by the fake birth date. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, so that is all going on in the background. I cannot imagine, you know, maybe when you're a little tiny kid, you don't understand a lot of it. She, when she was really, really small, used to ask her mother, why is everyone trying to touch my hair? Why is everyone screaming at me? Why is everyone trying to pull my shoelaces? And her mother would say things like, well, you know how you feel when you see a kitten or you see a a little rabbit. You just love them because they look so happy. They make you feel happy. Well, honey, you're happiness for a lot of people. And I'm like, oof, okay. I mean, that's as good as anyone could do. But you have to know, not every little girl is being followed down the street or, or screamed at, you know? Yeah. I do think that Gertrude had a uniquely difficult position because it was uncharted waters, you know, as being Shirley's closest parent and protector and manager and chauffeur and acting coach and all of that. Although in an interview once she said, at home, Shirley feels like everything revolves around her father. But being the mother of a famous star is a difficult road to travel. No mother can know how difficult until she has a small celebrity in her own home. It's like I could just imagine like millions of teeny tiny violins playing by these mothers who wanted exactly what Gertrude Temple had. You know, they were trying to get their kids. Dub dancing lessons increased so much just because people saw Shirley on stage and they thought, oh, my kid's cute. I'm going to take them to tap dancing lessons and they'll be discovered. Well, and I had the same conversation with my son. We were watching and I couldn't even tell you the name of it. Some TikTok or YouTube star. Again, don't at me. I've decided to cease adopting new technology (laughs) for a while. I'm all done. But anyway, we were watching a guy and this kid had to be 14 or 15 has made so much money with his YouTube channel that he bought his mother a house free and clear, in which they all live. Single mother, the kid, and at least one sibling. And so I said to Jet, now, how do you enforce curfew when your son has bought the house with his money? How does your relationship change? Did he have an answer? He goes, he doesn't have a curfew. I'm like, well, okay. (laughs) Well, that's probably about what I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I'm not going to put too much shame on Gertrude because really she did have a tough You know, she didn't want to have a brat or a spoiled person. She was responsible for her 
becoming a lovely young woman, you know, ultimately. So, so anyway, I'm going to give Gertrude a, a little pass. She was a stage mother, but Shirley always said they were the best of friends and the best um, partners. And so she was there and I was not. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie career went on during 37 and 38. We're not going to go through all the movies, notably uh, Heidi an adaptation of the Johanna Spiri story that I love. In fact, I love that story, although I always pictured her as having dark hair. So she didn't get cast, according to the girl in my mind. How dare they? Oh, your Heidi had dark hair? Mm-hmm. She had um, dark curly hair in the books. My Heidi had blonde hair. That's interesting. In my head. My in-head Heidi. That's interesting. And then uh, in 1938, it included another literary classic, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Although I think it was like in name only, they really remodeled the whole story. Um, At one point, a critic said, this is more like Rebecca of Radio City. (laughs) Fair enough. Doesn't matter. Everyone loved it. It was considered a triumph and ticket sales were great even though they transformed that title. But alas, the last two movies she made in 1938 were suddenly met with lackluster ticket sales and a critical reception she really hadn't faced before. Rotro cuteness in the Shirley Temple model might just have an expiration date. The shadow might just be hovering in the corner, but she had a rebound with my very favorite Shirley Temple movie ever, The Little Princess. Yet another adaptation from a childhood favorite of mine. Man, I love that book. And I actually really like that movie quite a bit. I love the little kid that plays Becky, the Cockney maid. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Turns out she was... um, Australian and that accent was just she just rolled it out and the crew just loved that little kid and Shirley Temple was actually jealous of that little girl. (laughs) Can Um, you imagine? But it was Shirley Temple's first Technicolor picture and it was a giant, giant hit. Yeah, you have to remember that because a lot of times when you see, you know, clips on YouTube or watch a Shirley Temple movie, they've been colorized. But originally, most of them were not. They were in black and white. But the general view, I'm sorry to say, as her age turned toward the two digits, she has been a wonder, said people, but she is growing up. Or we've seen all of Miss Temple's tricks so many times that the new films are just ordinary entertainment. To be fair, (laughs) the country was also coming out of the Depression, right? So people were no longer looking for that perky optimism that they had earlier in the 30s. Right. That's just the flip side of all that. And she didn't all of a sudden, like, go into stinkerland. Although between 1939 and 1940, she went, as far as popularity goes, from number one to number 13. Now, any other actor would be like, oh, my gosh, I'm number 13. I'm the 13th most popular actor in the world, where for her, it was, she was going in the other direction. A particular stinker, hmm. Susanna of the Mounties, was received with what I can only call outraged disappointment. The love affair was really, I mean, like, you know, those statues where you touch it so many times that the finish starts to wear off in this one part. I think that's what's happening to Shirley Temple's career. As a 
not final, but definitely hard blow. There seems to be some buzz about the Wizard of Oz. Now, different sources you'll read will say that the Wizard of Oz people wanted Shirley for the main character and her studio refused to lend her for one reason or another. Other sources say that Shirley Temple didn't make it because she had a weak singing voice. Now, I'm here to tell you a weak singing voice never stopped anyone. If you've ever seen Harvey Girls, there's a character in there that does this thing the whole time. And she's a major star. So whatever. I think oh, Shirley Temple's charisma could have carried it. Also, she was the correct age for Dorothy right. and still had a recognizable name. You know, so I don't know how serious were those negotiations about getting Shirley Temple over for The Wizard of Oz. Doesn't really matter. We all know who finally got it, another alum of the dancing school, Francis Gum, that was Judy Garland, who had to be strapped down to play the right age, if you know what I mean. The corsetry was tight. So there it is. For the first time in Shirley Temple's career, do you hear that silence? Do you hear the crickets? Because that's what happened. There was a period of time in which she was working on nothing, and it... (laughs) It is just that strange. Mama's behind the scenes, tap dancing and making phone calls. And look, said Zanuck, the president of Fox, I'm not here to develop Shirley's career, ma'am. That's that's not what I'm on this earth for. I'm in business to make money. And her mother was justifiably, I think, outraged. Shirley Temple saved your studio. Shirley Temple had paid the bills. Shirley Temple has made you $20 million. You know what I'm saying? Like, you owe her. You need to get her some good material and you need to stop being obstructive just because she's growing up. You need to find her some good material to work with. And the relationship between Shirley Temple's mother and the studio got so bad that they decided to only communicate by letter from now on. They could no longer meet face to face. Uh, It was just too contentious. And so when Shirley was cast in a movie called Bluebird, which did start out in sepia and turned into color, and it was based on a fairy tale, like kind of very loosely Hansel and Gretel, it was sort of poorly written and poorly received and kind of seen as the generic version of The Wizard of Oz. Um, She saw the way the wind was blowing, I think, mama. And after yet another disappointingly reviewed movie when Shirley was only 12, her parents announced that Shirley Temple would be retiring her screen career and would begin to live the life of a normal child. And the Temples went ahead and bought out the remaining 14 months of her contract. And literally, like, the gates clanged behind that car and Fox went over and turned her bungalow into a dentist's office. She loses her contract with Fox. She loses her cottage. She loses her schooling. She loses her driver. She loses all of it. But what she gains is something that she's really been craving. And that's a normal life. Shirley was enrolled in a non-denominational Christian school named Westlake School for Girls. She began in seventh grade and she began midterm. How awkward was, I mean, this is like her first day in real school with kids that aren't in the movies. It's not anything that she's familiar with, but she was so excited. She wrote in her diary after her first day, perhaps it was because it was my first Vespers, but tears came to my eyes. I looked at all those girls and knew I was one of them. She wasn't one of them at first. However, there was a considerable amount of 
let's call it hazing and hostility. She remembered being, and I quote, quite surprised that for the first time in my life, being Shirley Temple didn't solve everything. (laughs) Very telling, I thought. But ultimately, um, well, okay, spoiler alert, it all gets better. (laughs) But we're not there yet. Also at 12, this retirement being the short-lived retirement that it is, MGM, Metro Goldwyn Meyer, decided to make a bid for Shirley Temple and to put her under contract. During the negotiations, first week maybe, I'm not sure if it was during negotiations or during the first week of the actual contract, Shirley and her mother were sent to meet with separate movie executives and... (sighs) Something happened. Remember, she is 12 and Shirley Temple is sitting in a man's office and he, quote, rearranged his clothes while saying, you're going to be my next big star. Shirley Temple wrote in her biography that she saw what was there and started laughing uncontrollably. I mean, she's uncomfortable. And sometimes when you're uncomfortable, you start to laugh. She laughed and laughed until he kicked her out of his office. And when Shirley ran down the stairs, there was her mother, equally shocked in appearance and on the way home. Mama told her she had also been harassed by the head of the studio in her own personal meeting. Yikes, yikes. She only made one movie for that studio, and it was not received very well at all. (laughs) The main adjective I have to say is the reviews were vexing. But Shirley was kind of okay with all of this because she could have, the, you know, her regular life. She could walk into the doors of her school and not talk about movies at all. And there was a little bit of a problem because Gertrude was used to doing Shirley's hair and she gave her a little bit of lipstick every day, which wasn't allowed. It broke the, it broke the dress code. So Shirley at 12 is starting to take care of her herself, you know, get herself ready for school and go to school and follow the rules at school. She's struggling academically, but she's starting to meet people. And she had her actual first real birthday party. It's at the Bel Air Country Club. It's with kids that she actually knows, you know, students from the school. And she wakes up on the the morning and she thinks she's turning 12. And that's the day that her mother tells her, no, I'm sorry, honey, you're really already 13. I mean, she hasn't really lost a year of her life, but like she has lost a year of her life. But now she's a teenager. When you're 12, you want to be, you Um, don't want to be 12. You want to be a teenager. She thought it was really cool. It's like, oh, awesome. What a birthday present that is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I get it. At school, she talked about boys with her friends. She sang in the Glee Club. She wrote an anonymous gossip column in the school newspaper. She played small parts in school productions. And Gertrude actually was getting involved, too. She was a PTA mom. You know, she was she was an officer in the mom's club and she was chaperoning dances. I mean, this is not a set of a movie. This is their real life. And it's so normal. Except for her giant life-size playhouse in the backyard turned into a glorious teen hangout, including soda fountain. And there's the swimming pool right there. And there's a tennis court and a badminton court. And it's like, "Mm, yeah, okay, let's go to Shirley's. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, she had a screening room and a theater stage and a bowling alley in her little cottage. My house couldn't hold a bowling alley. (laughs) 
Well, so there you go. She was quite popular, I think, in her own merit. I mean, everybody's the same age as she is. For the first time, she just gets to be without any pressure from outside forces to conform to a character. She gets to be herself. So no less a luminary than David O. Selznick, fresh from the absolute triumph of Gone with the Wind, had started his own motion picture company called Vanguard. And he approached Shirley Temple um, with, I think, what could have become a second career proposition. He believed that she had to sort of start over. And appear in movies that are not, and I quote, a Shirley Temple vehicle, but other people's movies that she could play parts in, like Little Sister or Best Friend or that kind of thing. And the movies that she appeared in under that umbrella were reviewed as appealing and even splendid. So that might be a path back to, if not superstardom, at least a public life in the movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, extending her career just a bit more. And if you watch those movies, she's a teenager and she's an adorable teenager. So that would have been a logical step, you know, for her. She had her much ballyhooed first screen kiss. And, you know, it is weird when you run into kids like that you used to babysit or whatever, and they're at the bar drinking a martini. You're like... What? Cognitive dissonance. And so the whole world was like, <laughs> what? Shirley Temple is having a screen kiss. And so it became kind of a giant deal among, I mean, mostly grownups. I don't think teenagers really found it that appealing. I think they were all done. You know, <laughs> it was their cartoon network, like they had passed her or whatever. But um, anyway, it wasn't even her first screen kiss, because as I recall, I think she got a big fat smooch in one of those baby burlesques. So her first screen kiss was like age three. Yeah, it was her first one. And she actually had two lines in that movie. It was runt page after front page. And her two lines were, oui, oui, mon chéri, and ma, oui, mon capitaine. <laughs> <laughs> she kissed the cheek of Mon Cher and Ma Capitan. So, okay, well, maybe this was the first kiss on the lips. Then. Yes, it's like a real kiss. The first. <laughs> so, um, surely, along with both other movie stars and other young women of her age, volunteered quite a bit during World War II. Hers took the form of Hollywood canteen dances for the troops. She also traveled on tour to army posts entertaining the troops. She actually sang in front of a lot of people in person, which I don't think she had actually really done a lot of. Um, you know, she even said, you know, I'm not a veteran of the theater. I'm a veteran of the movies. <laughs> so this was a little bit scary for her. She did radio broadcasts and also hospital visits. One in particular really struck me. She was visiting a ward and a young, young soldier recognized her. You're Shirley Temple. And she agreed. Yes, indeed. She was Shirley Temple. Is there anything I can do for you? She said, how are you? Not very good. I'm sorry to say that my leg is going to be taken off tomorrow. Is there anything I can do for you? She said, and he said, pretty sadly, I, I wish you could be w there with me to hold my hand. And she, I mean, no bit of a lie, got special permission and sure enough, went in there and held his hand. That is something. That is something. That says a lot about her character, I think. So David Selznick also was so, so impressed at her movie performances. I'm going to quote from 
a memoir that he wrote. Shirley is exceedingly hot at the moment. We cannot commence to fill demands for interviews and other press material on her from newspapers and magazines. The public is very interested in her. So there you go. It could have been a comeback, you know, like Uh the momentum was turning in the other direction. I do wonder how much her real life was helping her at this stage in her acting career because she was going to, quote, real school and had real friends and was a, you know, very typical teenager offset. So I wonder how much she brought that to her role that she wouldn't have had if she had just gone right from child movies to teenage movies. The lines are kind of blurring again between Shirley Temple, TM, and Shirley Temple, the person. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Like, I think people were starting to go, oh, this is the this is how teenagers act. Right, right. Like the way they used to say, this is how little girls should act. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, see, again, though, that's a lot of pressure. I know it is. But it's also for someone who's been acting, it's probably not that hard to bring those things I don't know. What do I know? And I think Shirley Temple on screen wasn't that far off from Shirley Temple in reality, you know, personality wise. I know. I'm constantly wondering, though, you know how sometimes people act away and then they start to believe their own press? Uh, yeah. And I know I'm not saying that it was anything calculated or whatever, but I'm almost wondering if acting the perfect person for so long kind of just mm-hmm. became yeah. a habit. Well, and think of how Think about how hard that first year of Westlake would have been for her, you know, adjusting and not being the character. Mm-hmm. Easier to slip back into the old way. I don't know. I mean, when you're a little tiny kid that knows full well you can't smile with a gap tooth, you know, yeah. like you know about the scrutiny so early on. I think maybe you have a little protective force field of mm-hmm. Shirley Temple TM. I don't know. Yeah. 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 It's interesting to think about because, you know, the movie studio publicity departments are responsible for a lot of the information that's out there. So you can't take it at face value at all. Mm -hmm. The real Shirley actually took up smoking while she was in high school. She was 15. Now it was the fashion. So a lot of kids were smoking, but she had maybe, again, this is going back to your protective Shirley Temple TM shell, but she did it where people couldn't see her. Mm-hmm. So she knew that she had to maintain that squeaky clean yeah. image, even though she was just being a normal teenager of her peer group. Mm-hmm. She began to date. She was allowed to go out on one-on-one dates with members of the opposite sex, acting decorously as befits a proper 1940s young lady. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there was one guy in particular that rose to the top of the pack. Shirley met a guy named John Agar at a pool party. John is the older brother of one of her best friends, and he had been home on leave. So he came to the party with his sister. He met Shirley Temple. He thought she was very pleasant and then didn't think much of it because he was in his low 20s and he had lots of women all over the place. This was just a kid, you know, the friend of his sister. But Shirley had been thinking once she got 15, 16 years old, that the next step for her was marriage and a family. So she started coming up with a list of things that she was going to be looking for in a future spouse. She wanted him to not be in the movies. She wanted him to be good looking. She wanted him to be smart and funny. If he had never seen a Shirley Temple movie, all the better. And he had to be at least five years older than her. So John ticked off all those boxes and he remained in Shirley's brain. So this 
wealthy son of a, unfortunately, deceased Chicago meatpacker when Shirley was still 16 years old, surprised her with a proposal and a 2.5 carat diamond ring. And she accepted both of those things. It was her senior year of high school, and she also had been thinking that it would be really cool to be the first person in her class to get married. So this was going to help her get there really fast if they planned the wedding fast. And her wedding, I mean, if you think the first kiss was something, her wedding became like an international um, phenomenon. I have to tell you, a member of the House of Representatives gave a speech to his colleagues, and I want to quote it. It is kind of telling. We may rest assured that democracy is vigorously alive after reading the announcement recently made by Shirley Temple that she's engaged to an ordinary American soldier. Next to Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, Shirley Temple is one of the best-known individuals in the world, and unlike the big three, she is the most beloved, with no opposition and no enemies. All members of the House of Representatives wish her long and blessed happiness. That's lovely. It's lovely, but like... (laughs) Again, there's more pressure, right? But he was in the army. We were at war. It was World War II. So, you know, that's another reason why you have to point out, oh, look, she's marrying a regular guy that's in the army. She's helping to support the troops. He was said to go overseas later in the fall of 1945, but the war ended before then. However, it didn't end in enough time to change the wedding date. So the two were married at the Wilshire Methodist Church on September 19th, 1945. She was 17. He was 23. And it was a photo op made in heaven. (laughs) Right. There were 700 invited guests inside and about 7,000 crashers slash fans yelling outside. And after the wedding, They came out and then had to retreat and hide back in the church for 30 minutes until police came and were able to kind of construct a police cordon, like a column of policemen they could run through to get to the car to get them out the back way. We had to know that was coming. Why didn't we set that up in advance? I don't know. I don't either. (laughs) A notable person who wasn't there was Bill Robinson, but it wasn't by choice. He was in a show in New York and he couldn't get away. But he did send a note to the groom that said, you ever hurt this girl? I'll come and cut you. And that is actually no idle threat. That man used to carry a pearl-handled revolver with him wherever he went. So, John Agar, my two fingers point to my eyes. My one (laughs) finger points to you. Well, um, her playhouse out there in the back garden became her real house. Some people called it the most magnificent dollhouse there ever was. (laughs) I mean, there's a bar in the basement. There's a butler's pantry. I think that was a giant mistake. Oh. Actually, I know there was security there. And I, you know, I, I, at first I was like, why would you do that? And then I thought, well, actually, you know, you're secluded. You have the, the fences already there. The security system's already set up. And you do still need that as evidence by what just happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At your wedding. So, I mean, in one respect, okay, I get it. But like, mm, I just don't know that that's very smart. No. And if she's in her head thinking that this is her escape to womanhood, you know, she's getting married at 17, but she's a woman now and I'm going to have my own life separate from my parents. Mm -hmm. That's not going to do it. And her parents signed the cottage over to her, but Gertrude was in charge of the rehabbing it from a, you know, teenage playhouse into a young couple domicile. 
Shirley had no say in the matter. So she's starting off her marriage without making her own choices. Well, yeah. So which, you know, some people were saying that's why she got married in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, fair or not. Well, the newlyweds set up house and John complained that Shirley didn't know how to cook. And I was like, pick up an apron. But you know what? That's not appropriate for the 1940s. No. I suppose. <laughs> so she put on what I can only call a costume. It was her old school uniform and put on a different persona. In fact, got into character and went to cooking school. And she ended up in a class with, I guess, what do I say? Like functionally servants that, that wished to be employed or were employed by rich people and were there to improve their skills. And she spun a tale of woe to her fellow students about her horrible boss and the treatment she was getting and, and how, if only this, if only that, that one of the people went back to their employer and the employer sent feelers out to her rich people network <laughs> and asked around if anybody needed a cook that was a very nice young girl and this and that and her cook vouched for her and this and that and the fellow student got this beleaguered Shirley Temple character another job <laughs> with a better nicer family um uh, dig yourself a hole Shirley Temple <laughs> yeah yeah okay no I will say after a few months she gave up and hired a housekeeper which she knew how to do Right, right. And she went off to work on a movie with Clark Gable, like you do. Of course. Um, Mr. Selznick had met Shirley's husband at the wedding, and he thought, well, now, handsome six foot three John Agar just might be the thing or a thing. Come down for a screen test. I bet I can put you in the movies. You know what? What guy would turn that down when the guy that directed Gone with the Wind comes and tells you, hey, for like double what you're getting per month, but I'll give it to you per week. Why don't you just come on down? And he felt like <laughs> I am here under false pretenses, like I am printing money, but that's cool. And um, Mr. Selznick cast Shirley and John together for a couple of movies that went OK. In fact, Fort Apache has 100 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's good. It's actually known as a quality Western. It stars also Henry Fonda and John Wayne. This is not a little B movie. So the combo of Shirley plus John Agar was going a bit of okay. On screen, in person, it was not. The fighting started almost immediately upon their marriage. Now, that first year of marriage is so tough. But his eye and his hands didn't stop wandering. At one point, she saw him on the dance floor at a party with another woman, and he kissed her. And when Shirley brought it up later, he was just so angry and defensive. He said, I always wanted to marry a long-legged model, not someone like you. That poor little five-foot-two Shirley, you know, ouch. That's horrible. So the fighting started right away. Well, and in further bad news, Warner Brothers borrowed Shirley for a picture that was a giant embarrassing flop. In fact, the critics called Shirley Temple's performance, and I quote, ridiculous. So there's a series of bummers right in a row. But there was some good news right around the corner. Shirley was pregnant. She was 19 years old. And both of them, it sounds like, were very happy to welcome little Linda Susan Agar into the world in 1948. She went by Susan. 
which was also at the top of the popularity list. (laughs) (laughs) I think Susan stayed there a while. Susan did stay there a while, at least through the 60s. The year I was born, my name was number one and uh, my brother's name was actually number two. But we, we were both named after other people. Well, so the marriage continued to crumble. And at one point, Shirley actually had thoughts that she, in a fit of despondency, was going to take her car and drive it over a cliff. Instead of doing that, she called a doctor who insisted on meeting her and following her car home. I'm like, drive her home, boy, and get someone else to drive Shirley's car. But whatever, it all worked out. She got home, but that is how seriously bad the marriage had gotten. Mm -hmm. She was up to a pack and a half a day smoking. I know she had to grow up fast in the movies, but I don't think she was emotionally prepared either for marriage or marriage to this guy who, when he's called Mr. Temple, rages. She's not emotionally. Who is? No one is. It's like Red Flag City. Well, okay, you know what? Now that you said that, I actually am reminded of something. Okay, so John Agar is a very young man with no experience in the public eye, married to arguably the most famous woman in the world. Okay, so that's already a burden on him. And then everyone calls him... Mr. Temple, which erodes his manhood in 40s. Right. Remember how much Desi Arnaz hated being called Mr. Lucille Ball? And he was a grown man with experience in the industry, you know, so he hated that and it would make him fly into an absolute rage. Um, and, and so, you know, here we have these examples of mm-hmm. just they couldn't handle it. And I'm sure I'm sure his bad mood leaked out at home, I guess is all I'm saying. So the announcement went out. The world was um, taken aback at the end of functionally Camelot before Camelot, you know, existed. And she felt the need to sort of answer fans like this is not a decision I made lightly. This is this is heartbreaking to me. You know, my career doesn't mean as much to me as my marriage. And I really, really tried. And please don't let the gossip and all the rumors make you think the less of me. You know, she felt the need to like kind of defend what was actually a um, heartbreakingly personal decision. Right. She needed uh, Julia Child and Beckett Graham telling her no apologies. (laughs) Never explain. (laughs) That would have helped a lot, I think. So the divorce was inevitably a very public affair. Uh, You know, there's no possible way around that. And in the courtroom, John Agar was not there. In fact, he was filming and far away. But Shirley gave impassioned testimony. And the judge from the bench said that she had a, quote, special place in the hearts and minds of America. I'm like, this is not going to go John Agar's way. (laughs) John Agar was actually instructed to pay Shirley Temple alimony, even though at this point, Shirley Temple was a multimillionaire. And she got full custody of their child. Shirley actually had said later that she had wanted to get married due to peer pressure at school. And that reminded me so much of the Mona Lisa Smile movie again. And we keep referencing that. Remember that one hoop race where the girl that wins is supposed to be the next one to get married. And then there's other ladies racing with baby carriages because they'd already got their man and they were waiting for their babies. And it just seemed like a lot of peer pressure to drop out and get married. You know, that movie, The Help, 
everyone seemed surprised that she finished school because you go to college to get married and then you come back. You know, that was the goal is to come back as soon as possible, ideally freshman year. Right. I get it. That is actually making sense in the context of the decades in which she was growing up. So, yeah. And I don't know if we mentioned it. Her mother was 17 when George and Gertrude married. So I wonder if that was stuck in Shirley's head, too. Like, okay, this is the age I'm going to get married. Well, the scrutiny and the scolding from the public were almost too much for Shirley. America acted like Shirley Temple had betrayed them personally, to which Shirley said, when two people are put on a pedestal of perfection with everything so beautiful, the disillusionment when it comes is a hundred times as great. And Hollywood started to close the book on her. Look, you know, there's a hundred actresses better than Shirley Temple and more attractive than Shirley Temple, too. She was a phenomenon. I will give you that. She was a prodigy. And now everyone else has caught up and now everyone else has passed her. And I have to tell you, that's the fate of many prodigies. So what on earth do you do when the thing that defined you is just pulled out from under you like a tablecloth on one of those magician's dining room tables? But instead of the dishes staying, they go all over the floor and break into a million pieces. Shirley was genuinely flailing. Do you wear a bra that you absolutely love? Do you have a drawer full of them? (laughs) I do. Yes, I'm talking about my third love bras again, but I should because I love these bras. My drawer is full of them. It's the only bra that I wear. And as we're heading into 2021 with 2020 and our rearview mirrors, thankfully, 2021 is our time to shine. We can make that happen for ourselves. You need to focus on what makes you happy and start at the bottom up with your bras and underwear. Third Love creates better bras that focus on what matters, keeping you comfortable, no shortcuts, and no substitutions. Third Love uses the measurements of millions of women to design bras with all-day comfort and support. From modern stripes to lace that actually feel soft to their number one rated and my personal favorite, 24-7 classic t-shirt bra, check out all the exclusive styles at thirdlove.com. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to thirdlove, spell it out, T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash chicks for 20% off today. So Shirley and her family were sort of looking around like, what should we do? What should we do? And the thought was, you know what? We should get away. We should go on a family vacation. Let's go for a couple of weeks to a place that we know that we have been happy. They have been to Hawaii a couple of times before. It was very lovely and restful and exotic and kind of just the tonic that Shirley needed. And so they went off on an airplane to the great state of Hawaii. And man, were the people happy to see her over the course of her (laughs) flight. Word got out that she was en route and approximately 3,000 people met her plane. (laughs) 
I know. Happily met her plane. So if she was feeling like nobody liked her anymore, based on the reactions about her divorce, you know, that must have been nice to see that. I think so. So it was so relaxing and surely felt so much better that the temples extended their stay for another month. They went ahead and moved into a beach house like you do when you have unlimited (laughs) money. And Shirley's spirits were really and genuinely lifted until one day during a fateful luau, she met (laughs) not only the disturbing appearance of Poi, which look that up, but also a man. The man's name was Charles Alden Black. He was an executive for the Dole Company. And this party just happened to be at Jim Dole's house. This is the same Dole family that were deeply involved in the deposing of Queen Liliuokalani, by the way. Another The History Chicks episode. So thumbs down on that. Yes. Um, these were not the men directly responsible. This was in the past, decades past. But nevertheless, we would be remiss not to say that this is basically the company that took Hawaii away from Queen Liliuokalani. So. Well, now I'm depressed. I was at a luau just a second ago, but now you reminded me. It's not Charles Black's fault. It's not his fault. Let's move on. Yes, it's not Charles Black's fault. Charles Alden Black was tall and tan. He loved to sail and he loved to surf. So Hawaii was a great place for him. He was a Stanford man. He was a Harvard man. And at the time, His first line to Shirley Temple was, you're new here, aren't you? Are you somebody's secretary? What? He wasn't wasn't joking. (laughs) He had never seen any Shirley Temple movies. I mean, he'd heard of her. Come on now. Right. You know, you would be an enormous cockamamie pretender if you tried to act like you'd never heard the name Shirley Temple. But he had never seen any of her movies. And as he said later, had very little invested in meeting one, you know, whatever, quote, movie star. But when he saw this little person, it was sort of like, as they say, Thunderbolt City. And then his second faux pas after she said she had been a child star, he said, oh, then you're a starlet. And she was really taken aback and took a great offense. And he's like, well, doesn't that mean just a diminutive star? You're small. And you're like, no, ding dong, no. But <laughs> he overcame that initial series of missteps. And they really started to get along. They were constant companions for the rest of the temple's stay in Hawaii. In fact, he followed her back, not followed her, like stalked her. Like he also came back to California. He threw over his job though. I mean, it was real. He moved back to California and took another job. And on December 6th, The year that Shirley Temple was 22 years old, her divorce from Mr. Agar became final. And 10 days later, on December 16th, she married Charles Black in private at his father's house. Unlike the first marriage, this time this couple moved away from her parents. Her parents put the estate, the cottage and the big house on the market because it was too much for them. Shirley wasn't going to live there again, so they couldn't live there even if they wanted to. Now, John had been young and inexperienced financially. He was just bouncing around professionally. But Charles is a businessman with an MBA. And he said, 
darling, what's the status of your income? You know, what do we have to work with? I need to know what our budget's going to be. And she had never thought to ask. So he convinced her to go to her father and say, what's going on, dad? How much money do I have? And dad took out the books and hemmed and hawed. And it turned out that he had made some very poor investments. Instead of the $3 million that should have been put in trust for her, i.e. sitting there like the vault in Harry Potter, when you open the door, there's a big pile of gold. There was a total of $44,000 left. That's it. Where had all this money gone? Her parents had spent it and had invested poorly. All of her hard work had vaporized. She said later that she didn't feel angry or sad. She didn't feel anything. And I think that's shock talking. Well, even later in her autobiography, she said, For reasons some may find inexplicable, I felt neither disappointment nor anger. Perhaps years spent ignoring such matters insulated me from disillusion. Well, I am just shocked. There was a child star who had preceded her named Jackie Coogan, a little boy, and his parents had been so blatantly thieverous. (laughs) I know that's not a word. (laughs) Um, With his money, they actually said, no, any money he earns until he's 21 is our money. He has no right to it. And they spent it all. And he was left in such poverty that Charlie Chaplin basically supported him for years, you know, kind of out of golly, you earned all this money. You should be enjoying it now when you're a grown man. No, he didn't. And so a law was passed that said that performing children had to have 15%, which seems very low, of their income placed in trusts for them. And throughout Shirley's career, her parents had insisted that they had done that. And had they done that, that's $3 million. So I did the math and I don't know that I'm doing it very awesomely, but it seems like she earned then $20 million if 3% is, you know, 3 million is 15%. For a family that was so close, it kind of surprised me. So yeah, huh. Well, luckily, luckily, their marriage in future did not fully depend on her money. He had a great job. He had a money of his own and their future life didn't rest on that potential. Luckily, because it wasn't there. I'm mad on her behalf, of course, but you know, if Shirley's not mad, I guess what right do I have to be angry? You know, right. We can be astonished. (laughs) Yeah, I remain astonished. I'm telling you right now. Well, they um, for this reason or perhaps just a desire to get back to normality um, after Charles um, served in the Korean conflict, which he did, and he came home and got assigned to the Pentagon. They moved to the Washington, D.C. area and they bought a small house. It says small house. I would not be surprised if it was upwards of 2,000 square feet. I mean, small house is relative. Uh, yeah. It had two and a half baths and four bedrooms and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I don't know how small it really is, but it was a lot smaller than the mansion she had grown up in. And she tended it lovingly herself. She was not distracted by a, a movie career. She even took joy in mowing the lawn with a borrowed, I guess the predecessor to the riding mower was a a tractor that would drag like a rod with blades on it and you could mow a large swath of grass that way. And she loved it. One time she was out mowing and a family stopped at the fence of her property and they all got out of the car and the dad took his camera out. So she kind of tooled on over to see what was going on. And the dad got irate. He's like, get out of the frame. Can you get, you're ruining my picture. And there's Shirley with her hair in a scarf and, you know, wearing grubby mowing clothes. And she's like, well, what's the big deal? And he said, that's Shirley Temple's house. Get out of my frame so I can take the picture. 
And all Shirley said was, oh, her? <laughs> and kept mowing. Oh, people. She began to make friends with the embassy slash diplomat set in D.C. And soon she was expecting a baby. Hooray. So her son, Charles Jr., was born, but complications left her at first near death and then grievously ill for approximately six weeks. Family became so important to her after this crisis and her privacy. She became very, very protective of her children, as you would. I mean, you know, she had endured death threats throughout her childhood. She was so angry at her daughter's school for promoting the school play by using a picture of Shirley Temple in her youth for the poster, saying the daughter of Shirley Temple is going to perform. She was so mad that she came and not only withdrew her child out of the play, but took her out of that school entirely. Like, you do not respect our family's right to privacy. So that'll be that. She objected to the preacher's plan to baptize her little son in a large group so that families could come look at Shirley Temple's son. She's like, no, I am not a spectacle. My children are not a spectacle. I'm a human being. And she was very insistent that she be treated in that way. And she lived that way. You know, she was getting marveled at things like the radiant heat on her floors because she lived in California. She didn't need that. But Maryland is very cold. She got a couple dogs and a bird. She started taking care of fish. You know, it's just like home, normal, upper middle class home. So at 25, uh, they decided they were going to move back to California. And on their way back, they said bye to the president, like you do on the way out. <laughs> um, she talks about that a lot, actually, in her autobiography, that particular visit. That's funny. Well, they ended up in an upper, upper middle class suburb of San Francisco in like a, I, the way they describe it's like a super ranch. It's like one of those sprawling ranches that just keeps going, but all on one floor, you know, and, and it was just family life, plain and simple. Her daughter, Lori, was born, her third child, and it was just 1950s suburban lifestyle. Mm, let's call it glamour shot suburban lifestyle. From then <laughs> on, I mean, we're not like we might have a hot dog on a stick, but, you know, it's fancy barbecue land. Yeah. We're, we're buying name brand. Um, right. <laughs> One of her brothers had developed multiple sclerosis, so she started doing work for the MS Society, but she tried her hand at being an interior decorator, like a real job. She and Charles joined the Sierra Society. They loved, you know, environmental causes. They wanted to put their energy towards that. She was offered movie roles here and there, but she turned them down quickly because that was not a life that she wanted again. However, at 32, the movie industry reached its hand out to her with a little gift. Unfortunately, you know, it was cemented to the ground, so she had to go there and look at it. But at 32, Shirley Temple got her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Hooray! Yay! <laughs> Hollywood reached out in another way, possibly because of the buzz around that Hollywood star. But a TV producer tracked her down with an idea. How about this? He said, let me pitch this to you. The Shirley Temple storybook. What we'll do is we'll make plays based on fairy tales and you can be in them or you can narrate them, whatever combination you would like to do. I think it's an idea whose time is coming. And then her son goes, ha ha, mom, you'll make a really good beast in Beauty and the Beast. 
And of course, her daughter talked to the producer and said, yes, her bottom's really big. Careful about the costumes. She weighed 107 pounds, ladies and gentlemen. So whatever. Like, yeah, how big could her bottom have even been? But whatever. Your children are not <laughs> holding back. No, but they're involved in the decision before Shirley would take this job. She sat down with the family. They had a family meeting about it and she laid it all out that she was going to have to leave once a month and go to L.A. and film this show. So are they okay with that? Is everybody on board? I love that. I love that they were all working together as a family. Here's something else that's really good. Shirley, let's put our finger on our temple our Shirley Temple right now. She <laughs> called the ideal toy company up and said, hello, I'm Shirley Temple. Remember me? You sold a lot of dolls based on my image. And I think based on my reappearance on television, you might be able to sell a few more of those dolls. And the ideal toy company could not scramble through its file <laughs> fast enough. And astute businesswoman Shirley Temple, having been burned by such things in the past, directed all the royalties to herself. And not her parents, of course. And so the royalties from those toy sales began to flow into the family. When she was younger, she was the inspiration for a lot of fashion choices. Her image was used. Her name was used. And she allowed now, we're talking 1960, her baby take a bow dress was reissued to be sold. And so I just think it's so cool that these mothers who had probably had one when they were little girls couldn't buy them for her, their own little girls. Mm -hmm. Although the little dolls, you know, had blonde curly hair. And once mama stopped rinsing, you know, the peroxide through Shirley's hair, her hair is very dark naturally. So she doesn't quite look like that little baby doll. Okay. I, I don't know. know what to say about that. Of course she didn't. She's like 42 <laughs> years old. I know. When I first saw a picture of her, I mean, talking years and years and years ago, I was shocked because she had dark hair, you know, in my head. She was always a blonde, but so am I. So... <laughs> Are you really? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. The dolls actually sold quite well. And the show was sort of, eh, eh. I mean, the first few were received really well, a little buzz, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's pretty much the, everyone's like, that was, that was some TV. That was a TV show. That's kind of like, it, it was just the middle. Um, they did reissue it as a whole other series of 14 having been colorized. So um, it was kind of a double dip of the Shirley Temple fairy tales. And she did make appearances on some variety and talk shows and even made a pilot for a show about a social worker that didn't end up going. Most pilots don't. I wouldn't read too much into that. And that, as they say, was was that Shirley Temple was, alas, not going to be the Hollywood comeback kid. Shirley was okay with this career change. She was okay putting away the entertainment persona because something else had caught her interest. When they lived in Washington, she started to get involved in politics. As the storybook was winding down, she started work on Richard Nixon's presidential campaign in 1960. She was a precinct captain in California for his campaign. Shirley was at a point in her life where she was exploring other options that were available to her, things she wanted to do. And the work she was doing through the MS Society gave her an opportunity to go to Russia to try and find out some information about new treatments that Russian scientists were coming up with. So she gets on a plane and goes to Russia thinking she's going to be able to meet with Nikita Khrushchev, the former Soviet premier, who she had, you know, just met at a party like you do. 
that was a dead end, but she just kept going until she connected with the scientists themselves and was able to meet with them. I can't imagine the level of determination that that requires. I'm thinking of in The Queen's Gambit, this is about the same time that the main character went to Russia and how Russia was at the time. So just put Shirley Temple in there and have her finding cures for MS instead of playing chess. It's kind of mind boggling to me. Although hearken back to when she first got into school and she said for the first time, being Shirley Temple didn't make all the difference. And so I think her ground state is being Shirley Temple makes all the difference. Oh, I see. And so I think there's a level of confidence knowing that it was still a very awesome thing to do and a a great quest to go on. And I'm not like downgrading her courage or anything like that. But I'm just saying, I think there might be a level of courage that an international superstar might have that we don't necessarily have the capability to draw upon. (laughs) (laughs) True. And isn't it great that the MS Society was able to utilize that experience? Correct. Correct. And both her volunteer work and her upcoming career in politics are kind of an extension of her previous career. She herself said, after all, what is a politician but another sort of actor? If you're comfortable in your own skin, you can go a long way or something like that. So good. So she had been on the fringe and at parties and in social situations with political operatives and the world of politics in general for years. She um, had worked on campaigns. She had attended dinners. And based on a conversation at one of those dinners, it kind of stuck with her. A representative, House of Representatives representative named J. Arthur Younger once urged her at a dinner party to run for office because after all, he said, us old dogs aren't going to be here forever. We're going to need some young people to take up the cause. And coincidentally enough, it was his death and therefore his open congressional seat that gave Shirley the charge to run for political office. And she decided to go for his seat. And it wasn't just her running, you know, it wasn't like she's running unopposed. There were four other Republicans and seven Democrats that were campaigning around California trying to get this seat. She and I don't see eye to eye politically. I just want to tell you right now, like, <laughs> like she came right out of the gate. Really, I'm trying to say this in a nonpartisan way. She was against Johnson's Great Society, the very concept of Johnson's Great Society. And she really talked it down. I just want to add that major parts of Johnson's Great Society, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Medicare, Medicaid, increased access to student loans, and aid to public education. I'm just saying, that's what I'm saying, leaving it there. Those were fundamental parts of the Great Society. Shirley didn't like this. Shirley was very, very against um, like R-rated entertainment and movies. She believed that movies should have a more pure tone. And uh, she was kind of for censorship of movies, or at least labeling of movies, which that's fine. She really hated the whole concept of hippies. They were so gross to her. She was very conservative in her politics. Although I do want to say she may have had these very uh, conservative viewpoints, but she also thought it was time for women to get more into politics. At one point, she said, 
I think men are fine and here to stay, but I have a hunch that it wouldn't hurt to have a woman's viewpoint expressed in that delegation of 38 men. One congresswoman among 38 congressmen is not unfair, fellows. However, she was against women's liberation. She said, I am not a women's liberal. I prefer the strong arms of my husband around me. I always wonder a lot. Of, I mean, I know I've been victim to this. It just you get caught up in the image of what something is and like your first impression. And it's so off that it takes a while to get like me and Game of Thrones. Maybe did you watch it? No, thumbs uh, down is what I'm saying. Oh, no, I'm I'm saying like tie this into that is calling yourself a feminist. People in my age range never liked the word because it conveyed anger and people that they weren't like at all. While on the other hand, acting exactly like a feminist, you know, believing in the same causes. So there might be some words that have just gotten too much emotional baggage. Yes, yes. And I think this might have been Shirley's time thinking that. Like, if you're a feminist, you can't love your husband. Mm, Okay. I see. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Her campaign was tainted slash helped by her celebrity. Like, on one hand, she'd walk in a room and somebody, wouldn't they play the good ship lollipop? (laughs) And she would have to say tartly, little Shirley Temple is not running. I am running. She would often refer to movie Shirley Temple as the little girl, as if she was a different person than her current person. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, though, you can call your old friend Bing Crosby and he'll come over and help you throw a thousand dollar a plate fundraiser. So, mm, you know, (laughs) all of that did not get her the nomination. She was not an experienced politician. She was an experienced public speaker with a prepared message, but she wasn't very good on her feet, just answering questions without having prepared anything. But it did teach her a lot, and it whet her appetite for more politics in her life. Well, she went out as the star attraction for dozens of fundraisers for old Mr. Nixon all over America, harnessing her undoubted star power for a bigger cause than herself. But for herself, I do believe she went to Vienna for the International Federation of Multiple Sclerosis Societies, of which she was a founder. It's a very, very giant multinational organization. And following her tour in Austria, she went over to Czechoslovakia to persuade that country's government to participate. So you see this whole going to Russia and assuming you're going to speak to the president was not so far-fetched because what mm-hmm. what did she do? She went and talked at, uh, to people at the highest levels in multiple countries. But that night, the Russians invaded Prague. Shirley Temple and 400 other Americans had a very anxious day full of the sounds of gunfire and um, yelling until they could be evacuated under guard in a convoy to West Germany. So there's a little drama. What timing that was. Mm, not very good timing. <laughs> She uh, spent further time in the capitals of Europe fundraising and getting out the vote in the wealthy expat community. It might have been her fundraising skill, multiple millions of dollars, in fact, that led to her being named one of 10 delegates from the United States to the United Nations. At first, people thought that this was just a celebrity put in a position as a thank you. But Shirley was taking it very seriously. And I think she quickly showed people that, no, I'm not just here for pictures. I'm here to do serious work. She was a very hard worker and she was not very 
savvy. Like she, she didn't quite understand. Um, what am I trying to say? It's almost like subterfuge, but you have to like kind of play the game a little bit. And I think she just went right down the middle and took people aback. But after a while, after people kind of knew what was coming, they started to really respect her. She worked on committees on the environment and on refugees and, and youth. And also curiously, quote, the peaceful use of outer space. <laughs> she studied. If somebody gave her an assignment or there was a committee meeting coming, she would get all the materials she could get on the subject. She would ask to be briefed on a certain subject. And several members of a future presidential administration were so impressed with her incisive and thoughtful questions about certain countries in Africa that it really stuck with them. So more on that later, but like she made an impression on people during her term there in the United Nations for her dedication and hard work and just really kind of erasing that little taint of favoritism that this is just a photo op nomination. Mm -hmm. And that was her goal having gone there. So she did a great job and networked and, you know, made friends. So she had further diplomatic work with a UN-based environmental council and then moved to the President's Council on Environmental Quality. So it wasn't just a one-time deal. Mm -mm. She did those political assignments all through the 60s. This isn't just like a one year here, you know, I'm done thing. This is a commitment, a 10-year, 12-year commitment to politics. When she was 44, she was doing a breast self-exam and felt a lump. So the next day she went in for a mammogram and learned that it was cancer. Now, I can say that out loud now, but in the 1970s, cancer was still one of those words they whispered. And if it's breast cancer, because it's an intimate part of a woman's body, there was a lot of shame involved in it. And Shirley's like, it's part of my body. And this I'm going through this and I can help people. So she had her mastectomy. She spoke with the press from her hospital bed. She allowed photographs to be taken so that she could help destigmatize breast cancer and say, look, women, you've got to do this exam. You have to know that this is something that can happen to you. And you have to face it. The month after she had had her mastectomy and uh, started doing all her speaking out on breast cancer, the American Cancer Society reported a 30% increase in women that were just looking for information about breast cancer, how to do self-exams, you know, what to do if you feel a lump. What does a lump feel like? These are all things that women didn't know at the time. Doctors and the public praised this step. She may have saved lives with her actions and thousands and thousands of telegrams poured in wishing her well. When Shirley Temple was 56, President Ford named her the U.S. ambassador to Ghana because... Here's a little callback. She had made such an impression on key people in his administration... Mr. Kissinger, with her knowledge of Africa during her United Nations days. But the global reaction was what? With a period. People accused her of having bought her position through campaign donations, and she and Charles publicly revealed that they had only donated $300 to the Republican Party, that she had earned this position. You may have not been following her around in the last 15 years, but she's been working towards a position just like this. I know. I do think it's kind of funny, though, because like first you have that actor, Ronald Reagan, becoming governor of <laughs> California and then, like, right on the heels of this, like a couple years later. It's like, and who is 
what are we turning into? So yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I guess I can understand the press being like, wait, what is happening? Underestimated, surely, who Hermione did up, in fact, and studied Ghana within an inch of its life. She sought anyone who knew anything about Ghana, took meetings, robbed all libraries of their books for a period of time about Africa. I encourage you again to go to that Sporkle quiz. Can you find the countries of Africa and find where Ghana is? So maybe I shouldn't tell you where. <laughs> we covered this in our coverage of the crown too. If Africa is vaguely shaped like a skull face to the right, Ghana is kind of right where the hinge um, at the back of your neck is. That little like right at the hinge area is where you're going to find Ghana. So that's where it is. Northwest Africa. And that's where she went. And her temperament matched those of the Ghanaian people, I think. And she had this open and really friendly nature. And she fit just right in. I mean, babies began to be named after her, even boy babies. That's interesting. The public appearances that she made in Ghana resulted in great joy. And she listened to people small and big, quote, unimportant and important, and really gained the admiration of the international community. Shirley, they said, is a capable, wonderful person who lives for the good of others. She worked hard and did her research and was this great middleman between American industry. Upwards of 30 American companies were operating in Ghana at the time. She was a liaison between them and the Ghanaian government. And she was made an honorary deputy chief. And I apologize. I did look this up, but it's a very long word and it's been a few days. But it's an about domine of the Fanti tribe, which means deputy chief. And she was honored in other ways by other chiefs with gifts and visits. I think she took this really to heart and she was really honored by it because even later in her life, when she talks about it, you can watch interviews with her. She just lights up. You know, I am a chief. You know. <laughs> I love that. Although she did serve M&Ms to the Chinese ambassador. LOL, LOL, LOL. <laughs> well, he served her lychee nuts. And so she asked around and everybody's like, that's a very common snack. It's kind of a treat, but not really. It's just around. It's pretty common. She goes, well, what's a common snack that's delicious, but not that expensive? She's like, all right, chocolate M&Ms. <laughs> it's very uh, funny. Yes, I would have been appreciative. I appreciate that. <laughs> I hope they were plain because I don't like the peanut ones. For those British listeners, these are Smarties. And they're all going, oh. <laughs> and for the Americans, not the Smarties like we know, which are sweet tarts. Anyway, moving <laughs> on. After only about a year and a half as ambassador to Ghana, President Ford recalled her back to Washington. But this wasn't a demotion. He wanted her for the position of chief of protocol at the State Department. Did she warned her, though, about the M&Ms, though? <laughs> I don't know. But she was the first woman. I bet she could get away with it. So a chief of protocol is basically the person that takes charge from top to bottom of the entirety of a visit when a head of state comes to visit the country. I read one thing that said they're like a giant party planner, but that really devalues all of the things they have to do. They have to arrange for protection and transportation and welcoming committees and things, just even the red carpet, everything. 
And the customs of the visiting dignitaries need to be learned. She was also responsible for maintaining a building called Blair House, which is and still is like the guest room of America. In fact, if presidents have a state funeral, you know, ex-presidents and their families need to come to Washington, D.C., that is where they stay. So it is a um, one of the most exclusive hotel rooms in uh, the country. In fact, it's perfectly capable of being used as a substitute White House if they ever should need it. It's secured. It's got the secure lines going in and out. So there it is. It's a very, very big responsibility. She was, however, relieved of duty with the inauguration of Jimmy Carter, but returned as an ambassador trainer during the Reagan administration. In the mid-80s, during a tribute at the Oscars, Shirley was presented with a full-size Oscar to replace the half-size one she had gotten so long ago. When she was 60, it was time for her to get her life on paper. She wrote her autobiography, except it isn't the entire autobiography. She considered it part one. Her autobiography only goes to the birth of her third child. She dedicated it to her mother. And 517 pages later, the final words were, thanks, mom. Mm Hmm. When it was published, she did a book tour. So if you wanted to watch any interviews with a mature Shirley Temple Black, you can find them that were done about this time. (laughs) It is a very, very, very big book. You could press some flowers (laughs) with this book. So the year after her autobiography, she was named ambassador to Czechoslovakia. Um, Modern day Czechia, I guess. It's hard to keep up. Again, there's a sporkle test. For name the countries of Europe, of which I do very poorly at, because a lot of the countries that are on there now were not there when I learned my countries back (laughs) in the day. But at the time, this was Czechoslovakia. She was the ambassador. She was 61 years old. While she was the ambassador to Czechoslovakia, she called all of her staff in for a meeting. And she said, I am only going to do this once and only once. And then she launched into the good ship Lollipop. Now, I remember in Ghana, people started to like love her. She broke into some dance in a market square, but it was not a dance she had learned necessarily. It was a dance that she had seen some ladies doing. Mm -hmm. And you know, her mind, I mean, I still remember the choreography from Annie in my mind (laughs) and I could do it again. But once you get kind of a flair for memorizing dance steps, you're pretty good at it. And she had seen them do that dance and she rolled it out in the market square and people were so astonished. Like, wow. So I think that was a little part of her charm, but I can totally see that disclaimer. Like, look, you. Yeah. (laughs) It's a special occasion only. Yeah. One time. And if you see anybody ask me to do it, I'm not going to. Just Like it's not going to be CJ doing the jackal every year. Do you know what that refers to? I have no idea. Y'all, Susan doesn't know. But if you do know, you should write in. I'm going to Google it. So why don't you just tell me? It's a one of my favorite moments on the West Wing. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah. yeah, they basically ask her to lip sync this song called The Jackal. Anyway, the end. You can Google that or maybe we can put it in the show notes. I don't know. <laughs> she held the post in Czechoslovakia until 1992. And that was kind of the end of her political career. That's, she earned it. Yeah. In 1998, she did receive the Kennedy Center honors, so that's back in Washington. 
After she ended her political career, she really stepped out of the public life. You can not find very many pictures of her after, like almost after the Kennedy Center honors. That's like the last ones you can really, the average person can find. And I am. I am one of those average people. But I did also look at the Library of Congress. I'm like, there's got to be something of her later. But no, she traveled. She played with her grandchildren, with her great grandchildren. She said she was working on the second part of the Shirley Temple autobiography. All in all, she had held various State Department positions for over 20 years. And she served on the board of directors in her later life for such places as Walt Disney, Bank of America, the Del Monte Company, and the National Wildlife Federation. She never did quit smoking. And we all know you can't be a lifelong smoker without having something happen. And she was diagnosed with a pulmonary disease that she dealt with for the rest of her life. Charles died in 2005 at home of bone marrow disease. The rest of Shirley's life was very private. She kept working on that book. I can't even tell you how many years she claimed to be working on the second book, which never materialized. Well, she writes in longhand, number one, and the first one is real fat. So she could legitimately have been working on it for the time she claimed to be working. Yes. Yeah, she wrote some very flowery sentences. She liked her words. That's a nice thing to say, right? Yeah. And when asked what her greatest achievement had been in her whole life, she smiled really big and said, marrying Charles Black. So that's a tribute to her husband. I love that. Shirley Temple Black died on February 10th, 2014 of chronic pulmonary disease at her home in Woodside, California. She was 85 years old. She is interred in the Alta Mesa Memorial Park in Palo Alto, California. And the marker on the mausoleum says simply, beloved wife, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother. That's it. I love it. So simple. And that was what was important to her. And we have reached the end of our coverage of the life of Shirley Temple. And now for media. Obviously, other than the autobiography child star that we keep mentioning that is really tall, um, the book that I liked the best, actually, was The Shirley Temple Story by Lester David and Irene David. It has a whole center section full of photos and is very easy to read and reasonably birth to death. Although it does end before she has passed because this book is from before she died. There are no current biographies of her. The last one that was published was in the year that she died. It's called The Little Girl Who Fought the Great Depression, Shirley Temple in 1930s America by John F. Kaysan. And that's a really good book to look at how Shirley's image walked through the Depression. So It does have a lot of political background yes. in there. So you, you're going to learn about Hoover Yep, more than what you learned during the musical Annie. When everyone was yelling at him about the chickens and the pots, um, you're going to learn a little bit more about his philosophies and um, personality and then moving right into FDR. And also, I loved part of that book where it talked about like the economy of the movie theaters, Uh that people would deny themselves things to go to the movie theater and that kind of thing. So I loved that one for all the background. Mm -hmm. Um, I really did. Yeah, I did too. Although it ends at the depression again. 
The other biography that I used was Shirley Temple, American Princess by Anne Edwards. It was published the same year as her autobiography. And in an interview, I heard her allude to several inaccuracies in a recently published biography. So I can only assume it's this one. Well, and even the one, the David book, didn't mention that her money disappeared. So either it didn't come out before this book was published or they just didn't have access to that information. So yeah, the, their position was that she was set up for the rest of her life with all this money and never had to brave her a minute. You know, there was no mention made of her fortune disappearing. Although now we regard that as kind of common knowledge. So maybe it's just all in what they had mm-hmm. access to. Right, right. Okay, that's all I have for books. I was shocked that there wasn't more biographies available. Shocked. Yeah, uh, you know, I just wonder because, you know, she was a major star, but only until about the age of 11 or 12. And people are just fickle. Yeah. Although obviously the younger generation knows who she is if they could all randomly sing a song to me while playing a video game. So I told my daughter that story. And she, when I said the part about, she said, do you know who... Shirley Temple is. Becca looked at me. She goes, don't do it. Don't sing it. Please don't sing it. (laughs) I go, don't sing what? (laughs) She said, just don't do it. I know what it is. Did she remember that commercial? Absolutely. Yep. Funny. Yeah. Okay. So yet another impromptu survey. Ask your children. I know. Um, I'll try to hit the mm, 14 to 18s because I think that's the height of, you know, adventure time and Uh, whatnot. She's 24. Huh. Yeah. As to movies, you know what we're going to say. Most of them can be viewed either on YouTube or if you have uh, a service at your library called Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y, maybe you could get lucky and catch them that way. I'm not sure if any of them are streaming, but it's just not possible to be in a Shirley Temple drought. No. Uh, Prime does have a baby burlesque collection. You do. It's a paid one. It's not part of the regular streaming. And they're about a dollar each to make you cringe. So if you want to cringe for a buck, I thought it was important to watch a couple of them. Yeah. So there's two dollars spent. I got a receipt. (laughs) (laughs) On Prime, you can stream two seasons of Shirley Temple's storybook. So you can see that for your, if you pay for Prime, you can see it for nothing. The very first one she did was The Land of Oz, and she played Princess Ozma. Yay, Princess Ozma! And another one, she played The Little Mermaid. And while that story is closer to the original, that she didn't turn to foam at the end. I was so disappointed. I was like, yes, this is going to be right. This is going to be true to the story. And that was the part that always fascinated me as a kid is that the mermaid turned to sea foam. So whenever I lived on the ocean, saw sea foam, I thought of mermaids. Well, I love that story, but do remember we are on relatively low budget TV and the special effects might not be what you might want. Oh, absolutely. But just for the gowns that she wears at the very beginning, they're so early 60s. It's like you could see Betty Draper in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Loading like- out in the chiffon. <laughs> you can also find uh, DVDs at your library if you have a machine that can play them. Or if you have a library that is open. I do not. I don't know if you're... We're in different library systems, Susan and I, yeah. and uh, mine has even stopped drop-off and pick-up. Yeah, mine did. Uh, mine opened back up a little bit ago, but the other one that I go to just closed for this, you know, there's for COVID. 
they have to be on quarantine too. Yeah. It's so hard. I bought so many books in this past year because it's been just so difficult. I mean, even like shuttling the books between the libraries, it took too long. But I mean, that's fine. I totally understand. But it's just been it's been tricky, Beckett. Well, online, you can also find um, Susan referred to all the interviews that she gave during the 80s. And there is one in particular that I would like to call your attention to is um, with Larry King. And that is where she talked about being sexually harassed on the MGM lot when she was 12 years old. So that's um, sort of shocking revelation there. So just I call your attention to go, you know, make sure to see that one. It's like, I think 12 minutes in, we'll mark the place for you. And then more than any other subject, I almost think um, the Pinterest board is going to be able to lead you to a lot of different rabbit holes. And I don't need to possibly tell you all of them now. But this was an easy Pinterest board to make, kind of like Audrey Hepburn. You know, it kind of made itself. So Mm -hmm. um, don't leave that resource out because Pinterest preserves the original link. So hooray. Yeah. As far as the museum goes, the Santa Monica History Museum, when they're open, which they're not now, has an annual exhibit. So there's that, but there's no actual museum. Most of her collection was sold to private collectors. The Smithsonian does have her typewriter. Um, She has a portrait in the National Portrait Gallery. So there's that. Gosh, wouldn't it be kind of neat to have a kind of like how Julia Child has her kitchen there? Wouldn't it be neat to have a a movie set of Shirley Temple's there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That would be cute. I That would be cute. Do not go to ShirleyTemple.com thinking you're going to find a treasure trove of information because all you find is a sales pitch for film collections. I know that was very disappointing. I thought, well, now, Shirley. <laughs> Shirley, Shirley. Uh, well, Also, there is a timeline of her films, filmography at her IMDB page, which actually does have both videos and links to other places. So that's a good place to drop in. Don't forget about the Sporkle Quiz, both Africa and Europe. Feel free to do Asia. I'm doing Asia right now. Makes no difference with regard to Shirley Temple, but it is a challenge. Um, So I'm doing those. We'll provide you a link to those. I think they're fun. But then again, I'm a nerd. So, um, (laughs) so, you know, use your judgment on that. What I think is fun is that there is a very pink blush colored peony named after her. It's like a, a white and pink bloom. It's beautiful. I want to get myself a Shirley Temple peony and plant it in the backyard. I think it's so flattering to have flowers named after you. (laughs) It really is. And um, I don't even know what to call this. It's like a viral sensation of a child who's famous because of Shirley Temple, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Yeah. But there is a little tiny boy whose name is Leo Kelly. And earlier this year, I mean, right before the pandemic hit, so maybe we've all forgot about him, was a little kid who has made this kind of online name for himself, rating and reviewing restaurants, Shirley Temple drinks. He's the Shirley Temple King. I follow him on Instagram. Yeah, he's totally tiny. He's like six or seven. I think he's six. Anyway, he's totally little. He's totally cute. And um, I don't know that Shirley Temple herself would love it because I don't think she even liked that drink in the first place. But I think it's hilarious and great. And if you're looking for the cocktail, I will link you up to the recipe for the Dirty Shirley. I liked your picture that you showed me the other day. Oh, I already put it on the show notes. I was so proud of that picture. <laughs> she has fancy sprinkles. I do. Have, I love fancy sprinkles. Just put them around the edge of the glass. It's oh, so Do fancy. they taste like crunchy? It reminds me of like boba tea where you're like, ooh, 
What is that texture? Well, you know, have you ever had like, um, you know, a signature drink that has stuff around the rim? So like, okay, okay. A margarita. Yeah. So you get like a little bit of salt and then you get the stuff. So that's kind of how it is. I like you don't have to chew the salt. No, that's true. That's literally what I'm saying. (laughs) One time I got, um, it was a peanut butter and jelly martini just because I don't even know why I got it. It was the most disgusting thing. It had peanut butter around the rim. I was like, I drank it. It was a grape flavored drink with peanut butter around the rim of the glass. Delicious. Not really. (laughs) So anyway, uh, I have nothing else. Okay. And in closing, Shirley Temple TM became an icon of ideal girlhood and a symbol of hope and optimism. During a dark period in history, people took her to their hearts. But Shirley Temple Black, the person, was able to navigate the uncharted waters of early and almost unimaginable scrutiny and use that pressure to forge for herself a second legacy, that of philanthropy and of public service. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please, you know the drill, tell a few friends about us or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or your favorite podcatcher. We really appreciate it. For this episode, more than almost any other, I recommend going to the Pinterest board where, incidentally, you can find, in addition to the Shirley Temple board, separate boards for nearly every single one of our episodes, leading down so many rabbit holes. Just perfect for yet another evening in. And since we can't really hang out in person... Why don't I encourage you to go join the History Chicks Lounge, where friendships are being made, traditions are being forged. It is, in general, quite a lovely place to be. All you do to get there is go to our Facebook page and find the button in the middle that says Join Group. Click it and just answer the question there, which is... What is the first podcast episode that you listen to? There's no wrong answers. The song in the middle is called Little Blossom by John Marco Leone. And the closing song is B-Movie by the band The Spoons. And when I picked this, I was thinking it's kind of the relationship between Shirley and the public. We'll see you next time.
You totally dropped out. No, I, I just did. stopped talking. No, you were in the middle of a sentence. You dropped out. I know. No, I just stopped talking. <laughs> oh, you heard me say you dropped out, son of a yes. bitch. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I literally <laughs> just stopped talking. Okay. Okay. <sighs> did you eat supper? No, I have, um, as far as I know, never eaten supper. But, um... <laughs> like... Well, I know you've. Eaten. What do you mean you've never eaten supper? Supper? Oh, dinner. What I'm am so I, a Jane sorry. Austen character? <laughs> oh, what do I say? See you hey, next oh, time. Oh, you say thanks for listening. 